I think we've all seen it, uh, maybe in person, maybe in YouTube. Um, he stands out on the street corner with his megaphone in hand, raised up on a little platform, maybe even a literal soapbox, and uh, he talks incessantly, loud and aggravated tone. No, no, no one stops to listen, and, and you really can't blame them. It sounds like it's just an angry rant. Uh, he claims to be sharing the gospel, but he seems far more passionate about just informing people that they're going to burn in hell. And again, no one listens. And it just seems to be annoying people. Uh, Even as a fellow Christian, you kind of share their reaction, or at least you you understand it. But he's justified as he sees it. At least I'm proclaiming the gospel. At least I'm doing something rather than nothing. And on the other hand, um, I think we've often seen, and if we're perfectly honest, we've often been on the other side of the spectrum. Rather than proclaiming the gospel with no regard to the response of others, um, we so elevate our concern for the response of other people and their reaction that we hold off sharing the gospel. We, we wait for just the right time, wait for them to ask us. And, and what was started justified under the title of friendship evangelism soon just becomes friendship and really a very shallow one at that. But at least I'm living out the gospel. At least I'm not like that guy on the street corner who's turning people off by his loud, angry tone. But I think if we're honest, neither of those is faithful to our call to be witnesses to the gospel of Christ. Neither of those is really living out this mission that, that Jesus has given us. Uh, to be fair, I've, I've made a characterization of each side of that spectrum. I've seen street preaching done really well. I think it can be very effective, but it can be done poorly. And sometimes that long-term relationship is just what God uses to, to soften and save a hardened heart but I also think it can often be a thin justification for fear and laziness. And I think if we're looking for how to faithfully obey Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples, if we're asking what does it mean to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth, then I think there is a doable, sustainable, reasonable, obedient, and effective life of evangelism that the Bible calls us to. And, and, and that's what I want to talk about today. As we looked last week at, at Acts 1.8, Jesus sending his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we, and we talked about how we, we have this mission that we've been given. We are not to be passive here, just kind of waiting and hoping that Jesus might return. We're to be active. We're to be engaging the culture. We're to be seeking and reaching the lost people. We have a message that we've been entrusted with. This is not optional. This is not a, you know, a super Christian activity. This is for all of us to be sharing the gospel, to be reaching our community. Go and make disciples, Jesus said. That's for us. I think we need to hear that. I think we need to hear it often. I think we need to be reminded and challenged in that. And yet I think it's easy for us to feel motivated and helpless. How do I do it? I feel guilty now for not doing it, but what do I do? What does this look like? And and that's what I want us to look at this morning in Colossians chapter 4. Turn there with me, if you will. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on you, just go and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. Um, We want you to have God's Word 
open on your lap um, that you can see. This isn't my words. This is, this is God's words. Um, my goal is to say nothing other than what the Bible has already said. Um, but let me read this for us. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, and start in verse 2. Before I read, let me just give us a quick overview, a picture of the flow of Paul's thought here. Um, chapters 1 and 2 are about the glory of the gospel of Jesus, how great this Christ is. Chapter 3, uh, he begins to talk about how that gospel ought to transform our own hearts and our own, our own inner life. And then as he rounds out the end of chapter 3 and just that first verse of chapter 4, um, he's talking about these beyond the inner life, but how does it now affect our, our closest relationships, husbands and wives and children and, and parents and slaves and masters. And, and then into verse 2 of chapter 4, uh, he, he steps that circle out one more. How does this gospel transform how we interact with the world around us, with the outsiders, the unbelievers? Um, and that's where he begins here in verse 2. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That it may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And there's a lot in there. Uh, we could spend weeks here. Uh, instead, I just want to give us a quick overview of this passage. I, I think it outlines for us what it looks like to be just an, an everyday evangelist. I think that's what Paul is putting before the Colossians. Not necessarily this, this big deal street preacher or evangelist, but, but someone who just thinks about sharing their faith and is, and is active in that, in this kind of doable, sustainable, real-life kind of way. It's, it's achievable. It's, it's an everyday evangelism. And, and I think that's what God has called all of us to, regardless of your gifting, regardless of your passion or your personality. Uh, it might look different based on who God has created you to be, but, but He's called us all to be engaged in this work. So once again, as we look at verse 2, I, I think we find ourselves in a familiar place. Paul begins again with prayer. Uh, we, we started this series talking about abiding in Christ in, in John 15, 5. And Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The application to prayer is pretty obvious there. We need to be abiding in Christ, relying on him. We need to be going to him with our, our needs if we're going to accomplish anything, if we want to be fruitful as Christians, we, we need to begin with prayer. We moved to Acts 1.8 last week, and the first thing Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Uh, he points us to our need for that empowering of the Spirit. So again, I think it draws us to prayer, draws us to reliance on the Spirit. And as we come into Colossians, here it is again, the need for prayer. And and. Maybe I could have just skipped that. Let's not be redundant. Let's, let's just start this sermon in verse 3. I don't think anyone would have batted an eye. But 
But as we run across these themes consistently, I think instead of, instead of skimming them over and saying, oh yeah, we read that already, uh, I think we ought to take note. Paul's bringing this up again. The Bible's bringing this to our attention again and again. Look, the Lord knows our weakness. And our biggest weakness is our illusion of our own strength. He knows our tendency to, to want to forge ahead without Him, to try to do things on our own strength, to try to do it our own way. And He knows that we need consistently to be pushed back to our need for Him, pushed back again to prayer. And so as we ask, what does it look like to be an everyday evangelist? Um, Paul's answer is first, pray. Pray. A steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer life is the first move toward being a faithful, effective, everyday evangelist. Let's just dissect a couple of Paul's descriptive words here. He says we're to continue steadfastly in prayer. The word here carries the idea of, of loyalty, of consistency, of faithfulness. And, and in using this word, Paul is, Paul's kind of admitting that what he's asking is hard. This is not an easy thing. We tend to pray short prayers. We tend to pray inconsistently. We, we tend to pray kind of every now and then when, when we think about it. And, it, and it's great to, to pray throughout the day. We ought to do that. It's great to, to pray while you're driving or while you're waiting in line and just kind of grabbing those, those moments here and there. And it's great to take that kind of two seconds when you know all of a sudden, wow, Lord, I need help, and to, to go to him in, in just that quick prayer. But I think here Paul's calling us to something more than that. He's calling us to prayer that is steadfast, that is loyal that takes effort, that takes dedication and discipline, to, to sit down or kneel down, to put aside every other distraction, say, this isn't, this isn't something I'm doing, just grabbing minutes here and there, uh, filling in gaps of otherwise wasted time. No, I'm going to take significant time and just pray. Just be with the Lord, pushing everything else out. We need to be loyal in prayer, faithful in prayer. That ought to be a consistent part of our life, depending on God. That's hard. And I think if that's not something you're in the habit of doing, you're going you're to kneel down tomorrow morning, I hope, and, and say, okay, I'm going to spend a significant time in prayer. And you're going to need to like four minutes and be like, wow, that was a long prayer. And oh man, it's not really. Um, grow in that. Continue. Be disciplined. Begin a, a list of things that you're praying for. If you're, if you're nerdy, get the Prayer Mate app. I love it. You can just kind of put in these lists and it gives you, uh, you kind of custom build it. And, and so you're reminded of how to pray and what are the things I need to be praying about. But set aside significant time for prayer. And then Paul says that our prayer not only be uh, steadfast, but watchful. Be watchful in our prayer. This word is a military term, and, and, and kind of looking at the breadth of, uh, of Greek literature, um, it seems the Christians were the only ones that kind of stole this term and used it metaphorically. Otherwise, it's just kind of used in the military. And, uh, but, but the idea is to be on guard, to be engaged. It, it's, it's the man on, on the watch at night. Everyone else is sleeping, and he is alert and his eyes sharp watching the horizon. He's intent on staying awake. Do you, do you fall asleep when you pray? Do you get bored when you pray? What does that say about our prayers? 
We, we expect God to, to listen when we ourselves are bored with our prayers. We ought to be watchful. We ought to be engaged. We ought, we ought to be passionate and, and intentional, praying as if our prayers actually matter. And I think that's where this breaks down. Do, you, do we really believe that God is listening? And I think that's what we get as, as he moves into that next word. He says we ought to be praying with thanksgiving. How do you do that? Praying with thanksgiving happens when we pray believing that God is actually listening. Believing that he's actually hearing our prayers and will actually answer prayer. So often I think our prayer times are, are dull and dry because if we're honest, we're, we, we haven't, you know, you would say, absolutely, I believe God is listening, but, but that hasn't really taken root in our hearts. We don't really live that out in our prayers. Listen to 1 John 5, verse 14. John says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that enough to pray with a sense of thanksgiving that, that overflows in your heart? Rejoicing as you pray that, that your prayers are being heard. That God will certainly answer them according to His wisdom. Maybe not according to my wisdom, but according to His wisdom. His perfect will. That's the kind of faith-filled thanksgiving that should just animate our prayers. Give us life as we consider we're talking to the Almighty God who has promised, I will hear and I will act on your behalf. And then Paul gets a little more specific. Pray these prayers that are, that are steadfast, that are watchful, that are filled with thanksgiving. And then he says, as he kind of transitions here to this idea of how we interact to the outsiders, the world around us, he says, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now to really appreciate what Paul is writing here, we have, to, we have to stop and consider where he's writing this from. This is Paul. He has been arrested for his gospel witness. He's been taken to prison. And instead of praying that God would open the door to the prison, he's praying that God would open the door for him to share the gospel even more. This shows Paul's just absolute unwavering commitment to, to sharing the gospel, to speaking this message. This is Acts 20, 24 in action right here. I don't count my life of any value as precious to myself if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. They put him in prison. He doesn't even pray to be released. He just prays to continue to share the gospel there in prison. Nothing else matters. That's what is supreme in his heart. But it also shows his dependence on God. Paul was a man of impressive intellect, of great skill in writing and as an orator. Uh, he was confident and powerful. Uh, no doubt he could have easily bested anybody in, in a debate by just sheer blunt intellectual force. But that's not what he relies on. That's not where his hope is. He, he understands that if he's going to be fruitful in evangelism, if there's going to be anything eternal accomplished here, that's not enough. That's not going to take him down that road. If he's, this is going to be anything more than him just winning an argument or really talking to the wind, he needs God to be opening 
doors for the Word of God to be at work. And if Paul needs that, we certainly do as well. Do you pray steadfastly with watchfulness and thanksgiving that God will open doors for you to proclaim the mystery of Christ? We talked last week about how we need, we need the Holy Spirit in us, empowering us to speak boldly, to share the gospel. We need that. But we also need him to be work on the other side of the equation, right? If he isn't opening opportunities and working in the people to whom we are speaking, uh, then, then there's not going to be any change. We're preaching to, to dry bones, to, to hearts of stone. There will be no response without God's work. And so we start with prayer. We start again acknowledging, this is your work, God. I need you to do something here if this is going to mean anything at all. That has got to be step number one in this process. Pray. Pray for open doors. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Pray that people's hearts would be softened and God would open their eyes to receive that gospel. And pray specifically. It's, it's fine to pray generally for opportunities, um, but, but we ought to be bold in praying for certain people. Praying very specifically. Um, maybe you've already do this on your own. I hope you do, um, but humor me anyway. I want to take a few minutes and, and pray about who would God have you share with. Are there people in your life that, that you can be specifically praying for, asking God to open an opportunity with a particular individual? And so we're just going to take a few minutes right now. Um, ushers, why don't you go ahead and hand out these cards? Um, why don't you pray about it? Ask God for wisdom and His guidance and and write down three or four names on that card, or five if you five come to mind. Um, I'm just going to give you a few minutes to do that. Go ahead and put down some names that you could be praying specifically for that God would open an opportunity for you to share with them. So go ahead and do that right now. Maybe you're still writing. That's okay. Finish that. But I want you to hang on to that card. Tuck it into your Bible. Stick it on your fridge or on your bathroom mirror where you'll see it in the morning. Just commit to praying for these people. Praying steadfastly. Pray with watchfulness. Pray with thanksgiving for these people that God would would open doors for His Word to be at work in their life. And then look for that. Eagerly expect those opportunities. Work along with God to create those opportunities. You know, I think we're often far too timid to just call someone and say, hey, can we go for coffee? I have something I want to talk to you about. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me pause. Let me pray now for these people and and for us. Father, you are no stranger to any of the names written down on these cards. Lord, you know each of them. You created them. and You love them. Lord, we know it's your desire to see people saved. 
God, we want to be a part of that. We want to be faithful to this mission, this calling that you have given us. And God, we want to just start recognizing our inability and our desperate need for you. So Lord, would you hear our prayers? Would you be at work in the lives of these individuals, these people whose names we've written down? God, would you open doors in their hearts for your word to be at work? Would you bring circumstances into their lives where they would see their need for you? And would you give us opportunities and boldness to speak your gospel to them, to be that witness? Father, I pray that some of these names written down here this week, over the next weeks might be brothers and sisters that come to worship together with us. Lord, give us uh, the opportunity to be uh, co-laborers in your harvest, Lord. And we ask that you would save souls. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we need to start with prayer. We need to recognize our need for God. So keep those, pray faithfully for those. And, and let's rejoice together as you have opportunity. Talk about it in your small group. We're meeting next week at, uh, for, for a praise and prayer night. And then uh, the week after that, small groups start. And, and this ought to be a point of accountability as we, uh, as we meet together. Hey, are you praying for those people still? Who are they? Have you done anything about it? Are you reaching out to them? Are you talking to them? We, we begin with prayer. But secondly, as we work through this passage, the next step is proclaim. Pray and then proclaim. Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So let's get this straight. The gospel is a message. And it has to be spoken. If it's going to be received and believed, it needs to be told. Romans 10, 13 to 15, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious promise. What a great truth. Everyone who calls will be saved. But then he continues, How will they call on him whom they've never not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? How do they preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So people are, are to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. But they can't call on Him if they don't believe in Him. And they can't believe in Him if they've never heard of Him. And they're not going to hear of Him if we don't proclaim Him. We need to speak. All told, uh, historically, he probably never said this, but... St. Francis of Assisi is often attributed uh, with this saying, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That that is like our North American motto of evangelism. And and I just want to say it's wrong. It it just misses it. We we like our our friendship evangelism on the 20-year plan, um, but, but there's a problem with that saying. The gospel is words. It has to be spoken. It has to be spoken clearly. And if you're not speaking it, you're you're not proclaiming the gospel. 
Now, lifestyle matters. We'll, we'll get to that. Your life can be a, a great asset in, in your mission as a witness, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is a set of historical facts about the sinfulness of mankind, our rebellion against God, about the justice of God that demands our rightful punishment in hell, the mercy of God to send Jesus to live the the perfect life that we could never have lived and to die on the cross taking the penalty for sinners and the offer of salvation to all those who will respond in repentance and faith. Our job is to give witness to that good news, to proclaim it clearly. That's what it means to be an evangelist. That's the mission that we've been given. Not to, not to live a moral life and just kind of hope that somebody notices. It, it, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. They, they may ask you, but you need to proclaim it. That's the truth that saves. Your life, no matter how well lived, will not, not in a thousand years, clearly communicate those truths. You need to speak them. That's the mission that Paul was given. That's the great commission that has been given to us to make the gospel known. Now, the accusation will be made, and often is, in our day and age, it's just not okay to talk that way. It's just not acceptable. Everyone has their own truth. Who are you to say that your truth is better than someone else's truth, that you're right and they're wrong? It's not acceptable. You can't talk that way. They're right. It's not popular. It's not seen as appropriate. It's not socially acceptable. Holding to the truths of the Bible is, is very close to being deemed hate speech in our day. And I don't think it'll be long the way things are going. There are even Christians today who would just say, that's just not good form. Don't, don't do that. Strategically, if you want to win people, it's just not smart. It's just not helpful to talk about absolute truth, to talk about sin and, and judgment and our need for a Savior. That's a, that's a bad plan. You're pushing people away. You're hurting the mission of the gospel to talk that way. And, and let's not fool ourselves. There's nothing new under the sun. This was never a good plan. It, it wasn't. Not in any culture, not in any age. Paul, writing these very words 2,000 years ago, he's sitting in prison for doing this. It wasn't popular. It wasn't acceptable. And he's sharing the message of a man who was not only arrested, but was crucified for this very gospel. It didn't work well for him either. And the Bible is self-aware of that fact. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross, it's the gospel, is folly to those that are perishing. It's foolishness. They despise it. The promise of Jesus, Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Boldly and clearly proclaiming this message is not the popular thing to do. Scripture gets that. It's not going to go over well. Um, You start going through the list of men who faithfully proclaimed this message and and you're going to get a lot of beheadings and burnings and imprisonment. It doesn't go over well. Boldly proclaiming this message is not popular. 
And if you're to study our culture and to come up with a, a strategic way, how do, we, how do we grow the church? How do we build the faith? Um, let's, let's look at the, the culture and the way people think and work, and let's, let's come up with a plan to bring as many people into the church as possible. This would not be the plan. Any marketing firm would, would laugh you out of the room with this suggestion. You just wouldn't do it this way. You'll find that clearly proclaiming the gospel is not well received and there might be a price to pay. But listen to Paul's words from prison because of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not God's word is not popular, but it is powerful. Romans 1.16 holds true. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It's power of God. It's not popular, but it's powerful. Hebrews 2, or sorry, Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We're called to proclaim it. We're called to take this powerful message that is foolishness in the eyes of the world that will be offensive to them and proclaim it and let God's word be at work because it's powerful. It will be, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 has warned, it will be foolishness, sadly, in the eyes of those that are perishing. But then he continues. But to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Do you hear that? Those who say, no, no, let's apply our wisdom. Let's help God out. Let's come up with a better plan. And and, and Paul says, no, that will be laid to waste. Human wisdom will be of no value here. He's going to intentionally work against that. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God has intentionally done it backwards. He's intentionally taken that which was foolish in the eyes of the world, that which looks pathetic, that which looks like a bad plan and and made that his method of salvation. Instead of the wisdom of this world through the foolishness of what we preach, he will save those who believe. You can't help God. You can't fix this. We just need to be obedient to what he's called us to do. And it's precisely by the foolishness of the preaching that God does his greatest work. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? Are you willing to be a fool for the salvation of the lost? Give that some thought. Can I just own that? That's the question, isn't it? What else holds us back in in 2018 Canada? 
You're, you're not going to get arrested. You're not going to get put in jail. Not yet. Your family will not be threatened. It's not even very likely that someone will speak a, a harsh word to you or, or treat you unkindly. It could happen um, to a certain degree, but it's not likely. The threat that we face today in Canada, the, the, the threat that, that hits us most is just a threat against our pride. I don't want someone to be polite toward me while secretly they think I'm a fool. Secretly they think I'm weird. That's, that's the most likely negative reaction. That's what holds us back. And, and I'm not talking down to you. I feel that. that. That ridiculous nonsense fear weighs far too heavily on my own heart. We just need to decide beforehand, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a fool for Christ. I'm just going to own that. I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead with that as an assumption that they're going to think I'm weird and I'm okay with that. And then proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it clearly and boldly. It's how we ought to speak. It's not this idea of being apologetic and and trembling as we share that. That's not the kind of witness that we're called to. We're called to present it clearly. Not the one that, that cowers and mumbles and stumbles and apologizes. Not, not the one that, that subtly hints at the gospel or gives some riddle. The one who gracefully and, and lovingly, but, but clearly and, and persuasively and passionately presents, this is the truth. Grant read it earlier. Um, what was that? 2 Corinthians 3? Uh, Since we have such a hope, since we have such a hope, since we're looking at this great gospel of Jesus Christ that is so much better than the old covenant, the fulfillment of everything, the salvation that he has, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We're bold. Don't cover it, not shy about it. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Come and see. I don't know if you guys have any Facebook friends that are into like essential oils or Plexus or one of those things. Like It's like every single post. It helps you sleep better. It helps you stay awake better. It helps you lose weight. It helps you gain weight. It does everything. And they're just posting about it constantly. Why? Because they like it. Because they found something that works and they're passionate about it and excited about it. And they're, they're relentless with it. That ought to be us. Boldly saying, no, no, oh, you got, you got a backache? I know Jesus. You want to know about Jesus? Oh, you like, it's the cure. Maybe not for your backache, but for your eternal trial. This is it. We, we, ought, we ought to make those, those plexus, plexus nuts look like, look like nothing. We ought to be way out ahead of them. This is, it's, it's all about Christ. We ought to be very bold. So pray and then proclaim and finally practice. As I said, our life does matter. It's not the gospel, but that doesn't mean it's insignificant, right? And so verses 5 and 6, Paul addresses our practice, our our just everyday lives. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. First, he addresses our conduct and then our conversation. So to conduct, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The word walk, Paul often uses that as just a, kind of a metaphor for our 
just plodding along. Our every day, day in, day out, going to work, taking care of the kids, meeting people for whatever lives. Just your day in, day out. Do it in wisdom. Live a, a wise life. Don't be foolish. First Thessalonians picks up on this theme in, in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that's really basic. It's really simple. Stay out of the drama. Get a decent job. Provide for your family. Live an upstanding life. Don't depend on other people for handouts. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Live a good life. Be respectable. And then he pushes it a little further. Making the best use of your time. We've talked a little bit about this, the, the different Greek words for time. Um, there's, there's chronos, which talks about the chronological passing of time. Um, but the word here is kairos, which speaks of a season of time. It's an, it's an opportunity. That's what he's talking about. The idea being conveyed here, and, and, it's, and it's, it's singular. Make the best use of this opportunity, your life. Your life is a season. It's a, it's a moment. It's limited. It will not last forever. And, and you need to make the best use of it. It's a very healthy, helpful thing for us to consider. This life is short. Psalm 90, verse 12, the author actually prays, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For it is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Saying, it'd be better to go to a funeral than to a wedding. Because that's where we all end up. And the wise will, will go and lay it to heart and recognize, someday that's going to be me. Right? That's going to happen. If, if Christ doesn't return, this old body is breaking down. And that might happen sooner than we might think. We ought to number our days. That brings wisdom. Think about the fact you have, you have one less day on this earth today than you had yesterday. You have one shot at today and then it's gone. You have one shot at this life and then it's over. James 4, 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. That's it. It's, just, it's here and then it's gone. Make the most of that opportunity. And, and I think as we consider that, that makes it a little easier. Or, am I willing to be a fool for Christ for a, for a split second in the scope of eternity? Am I willing to bear that menial burden for this short opportunity that is my life? Among the books that have been most influential in my life is this little book I read years ago. Some of you have read it. John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. And the last chapter is a prayer, and it's titled, Let No One Say in the End, I've Wasted It. Those are haunting words. Let no one say in the end, I've wasted it. One opportunity, one chance. I don't want to get to the end and say, ah, I wasted. I got so caught up in, in trying to take care of the things of this world. I got so caught up in trying to protect my own pride, I, I, I missed it. It ended way shorter than I thought it would. I wasn't, I wasn't ready, God. 
Don't let that be you. Make the most of this short life. This this God-given opportunity. And I think by implication of the context, not wasting your life here, making the most of this opportunity means spending your life in, in this gospel mission, in reaching the lost. It means using your life to, to clearly proclaim the good news of salvation. That should just be the overwhelming undercurrent of our entire lives. We got a, a letter here last week and someone I haven't seen in years. She was my sister's or my my brother's girlfriend uh, way back when we were teenagers and they're they're packing up and they're they're moving the family to Bulgaria, something crazy. It's like they're just doing it. They're nobody special. They, they weren't some great spiritual powerhouse couple. They're just saying, you know what? We're, we are moved by the, the need of lost people in this foreign country. So we're taking our family. We're going for it. We're not going to waste this life. We're, we're, we're paying the cost. We're moving. Will you support us? What, what an amazing thing. Maybe God's going to call you to do that. I would be so excited. I, I, hate, I hate when we lose families as a church, right? When people are just like, hey, we're moving or we're going away. That's painful. But how exciting would it be if someone said, hey, we're we're going away because you know, we're, we're going to go to Bangladesh and share the gospel and put our lives out there for the, for the glory of Christ. That would be exciting loss. That would be something we could just rally behind as a church and, and be thrilled about. But whether it's there or here, it makes no difference. We're all called to give our lives to that extent. That should be the overwhelming flow of our lives. Our conduct day to day ought to be consistent with that. And verse 6 talks about our conversation. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's some debate here, the the meaning of the word gracious. It's it's not clear. Uh, More literally, we let your speech be with grace. And, And does it mean gracious, the way we typically think about it? Kind, gentle, sweet. Certainly that would be applicable. There'd be a bit of a balance there between making the most of every opportunity and still letting your speech be gracious. I think there's a good warning there for us. The other option is that Paul means that, that our speech ought to always have elements of the grace of God. Always pointing toward God's grace. Let there be grace in your speech. Uh, linguistically, it could be either. But I think it's the second option as I look at this. Um, First, Paul almost always, if not always, when he uses the word grace, gratia, throughout Scripture, he's talking about the grace of God and salvation. That's that's his typical meaning of that word. And and then I think the idea of seasoned with salt kind of backs that up. I I think it's kind of that Hebrew parallelism. He's he's saying it and then he's saying it again. Let Let your words always be with grace. Let them be seasoned with salt. Salt does three things. It, it adds flavor to food that is bland. Um, it slows the, the process of decay and, and corruption, and it causes thirst. And, and I think Paul is saying that our speech, our, our everyday conversations ought to be just salted with grace. Right? We could come back to the, the essential oils lady, right? It just seems to come up in every conversation. As we talk to people day to day about just life in general, we ought to be weaving in gospel threads. We ought to be finding places to bring this to bear, pointing people to to see our sinfulness. That's easy. You ever talk about the news at work? Then you have an opportunity to talk about the sinfulness of mankind. 
We need to talk about our need for a Savior and God's grace and providing a substitute. That's the kind of conversations that we should be having salted with grace. That brings flavor to our conversation. It should cause people to be, to be interested. That's not something people hear every day. I haven't, I haven't heard anyone you know, say that on CBC News lately. It's a new way of looking at it. I haven't thought of it that way before. It ought to slow the decay in the world uh, towards sin. We ought to call evil for what it is. That's, that's not interesting. That's not a different lifestyle choice. That's sin. We ought to be pointing out the consequences of sin, drawing attention to God's law. I just don't think God created us to live that way, to operate that way. Calling for righteousness. And then it ought to create a thirst. Desire to know more about this, God. This is intriguing. This is interesting. That informs the way, the way we work grace into these conversations. Not in a way that repels people with our own indignant attitude, but a way that, that intrigues people, a way that is uh, reaching out. That's interesting. Tell me more. And so our everyday conversations ought to be just tilling the soil for those gospel opportunities, tilling the soil for those chances we have to, to really sow the seed, to, to make the gospel clear. So our, our general practice, how we live our lives day to day and how we interact in our average conversations ought to always be playing this supporting role, driving toward that proclamation of the gospel. We ought to be just everyday evangelists. This is not, again, this is just not for those who are specifically called to be an evangelist. That's, that's not my gifting. Maybe not, but it is your mission. It's not dependent on having the right personality, and it's certainly not just for the, the professionals in the church. It's for all of us. This is our job as Christians. Go and be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples of every nation. Church, we've got to start with prayer. We've got to make that proclamation clear and bold. And we've got to just live it out in our practice day after day after day. Let me pray for us. Father, we have been convicted of our need to grow in this, to, to be engaged in this mission that you have sent us on. Lord, we don't want to be uh, the soldier on the battlefield huddled in the corner. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be fulfilling this mission that you have sent us on. God, we start in prayer. We start just recognizing our desperate need for you to work in us and to work in those that we, that we would speak with. God, would you open doors? Lord, would you be at work in the hearts of people around us? We're, we're trying now to muster our courage and our resolve to stand and to, to be counted as fools for the sake of the gospel. Would you go ahead of us and be, be preparing people's hearts? And then, Lord, when the time comes, give us boldness. Help us to speak clearly. Give us presence of mind to be able to lay out your gospel and our need for a Savior and the wonder of this provision that you have made on the cross. Father, I pray that all of our lives would just 
consistently back that up, would consistently be pointing people toward grace, would, would be building that witness. Lord, send us out. Give us boldness on this mission. Lord, we want to see people saved. We want to be a church that reaches our community for Christ. Lord, would you be faithful in us to produce this to the glory of your name. We pray. Amen.